I don't know how many got to see it this past week, but if there was ever a time on national TV that God just intervened and uh, worked through somebody, it was in this little clip I want to show you. It was on Fox News. This fellow, he played Jesus in the movie Passion of the Christ. I want you to see this. If you can, can we bring that up? Inspired moviegoers with his legendary portrayal of Jesus in the film The Passion of the Christ. Now actor Jim Caviezel is taking on a powerful new role addressing Christian persecution in the Middle East. We don't afraid to die. That's why we're going to win. I'm not afraid either. Do your job. and star of the new film, Infidel. Jim Caviezel joins me now. Jim, thank you so much for being here. The, the film is about an American Christian journalist imprisoned in Iran. Uh, what, what is the goal? I've, I've watched the trailer. It's out in theaters now, brand new. What's the goal of this film? Well, the, the goal is to obviously bring the attention to a lot of Americans of the persecution of what's going on in Iran, countries like China and uh, Christian persecution where they execute them um, for their faith, you know, that, that uh, people have taken their faith for granted as far as, you know, uh, especially here in the United States, but um, I, now with not being able to go to churches, um, which is a violation of our inalienable rights, um, we uh, need to start standing up. Jim, why are Christians not standing up in this moment? There is historic persecution, as you've mentioned, of Christians around the globe, uh, shrinking uh, measures here at home. Uh, is there a problem inside Christianity uh, in engaging in the world today? This is the fear factor, you know, but Jesus says, you know, do not be afraid, I go before you always. Um, and that was a big part of when I got to do the Passion of the Christ and the uh, understanding that, you know, I, at one point when I was struck by lightning and, and I had to have two heart surgeries, open heart as well, um, that it would, could cost me my life. But I knew that that was the whole message of the Gospels when Peter and Paul, and, and especially when I was reading Paul's uh, letters in the, to the Romans, it moved me so much that here this man knows he's going to be butchered by the Romans, but he stood up. And I said, may God, may, in this time that I could do what you need me to do and lead as many people back to you. And I took that into the performance of Infidel. That was important. I had to be a part of that. And so when Cyrus Norristead brought me this script, uh, I thought this is, these are the times that, uh, that we're living in that, that we have to start standing up. And uh, so I can do my little bit with that movie, but always the intention to bring souls back to Jesus. I can hear the passion in your voice. Uh, well, one other topic you wanted to touch on was Ronald Reagan gave a speech, a time for choosing speech in 1964. And he said, you and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. What can Americans learn from Ronald Reagan? What are your, what are your uh, thoughts on that at this moment in time? Yes, he's, 
That's right. He said that. And he said, now, also, he said, now, let's set the record straight. There's no argument over the choice between peace and war. But there's only one guaranteed way you can have peace and you can have it in the next second. Surrender. Admittedly, there's a risk in any course we follow other than this. But every lesson in history tells us that the greater risk lies in appeasement. And this is a specter our well-meaning Christian liberal friends, our, our priests, bishops, and pastors refuse to face. That their policy of accommodation is appeasement. And it gives us no choice between peace and war, only between fight and surrender. If we continue to accommodate, continue to back and retreat, eventually we will have to face the final demand, the final ultimatum. And what then? When Satan has told the people of this world, he knows what our answer is going to be. He has told them that we're retreating under the pressure of his cold war. And someday when the time is right to deliver his final ultimatum, our surrender will be voluntary. Because you see, by then, we will have been so weakened from within, spiritually, morally, economically. He believes this because from our side, he's heard voices pleading for peace at any price. Or better red than dead, or as one commentator put it, he'd rather live on his knees than die on his feet. And therein lies the road to war because those voices don't speak for the rest of us. You and I know it and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Ridge have refused to fire the shot heard around the world? The martyrs of history were not fools in our beloved dead who gave their lives to stop the advance and the Nazis did not die in vain. Where then lies the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all, that you and I have the courage to tell our enemies there is a price we will not pay, there is a point beyond which evil must yeah. not advance. In the words of Jim, Reagan, evil is powerless if the good are unafraid. Jim Caviezel, thank you so much for that insight and congratulations on the powerful thing. I am convinced what you just saw there was a prophetic utterance from God. Yeah, just uh, I, I, that was that was prophetic. That was prophetic, uh, and we better take it to heart. We better take it to heart. I want to share with you this morning, and I hope you have your Bibles with you. I told Matt my sermon title for today is "Scriptures Make You Go Wild." You know. Most people in this part of the country have heard the gospel. That Jesus is God incarnate who came into the world for one purpose. He lived 33 and a half years. He went to the cross and died with our sin upon him. Rose from the grave and all those who trust in his vicarious and substitutionary atonement shall be saved. That's the gospel. But there's aspects of the gospel that should make us extremely excited all the days of our Christian life. There's what's called Reformed theology that's there in the heart of this gospel. You see, I was brought up in a, a, a church that uh, was of Armenian theology. And what that means is that you can be saved, go through the, God, uh, the salvation plan just like I went through, but you could lose your salvation if you sin. And so therefore, every day, all through the day, I was asking Jesus Christ to come into my heart and save me because I knew better than anybody else that I did not deserve heaven. I did not deserve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my life in Jesus Christ, though I was baptized when I was eight years old, was one that was based constantly upon fear. Fear, did, did I say something? Did I think something? Did I commit a sin that I'm totally unaware of? Did I commit a sin that I'm fully aware of? 
And therefore, if I were to die before I got forgiveness and asked Jesus back in my heart again, I'd split hell wide open. And one day I was literally, uh, this is when I was thinner, jogging up the road. And uh, the Holy Spirit just laid on my heart, that's, that's not living in the Lord. That's, that's just not moving from square one. That is stuck in one place. And I hate to tell you this, but there's many, many denominations who live in that same kind of fear as though God were dangling us over the pits of hell waiting for us to make a mistake so he could let us go. I had a professor in college. He was literally a genius. Uh, Dr. Ted Hildebrandt. Uh, he wrote an entire uh, CD-ROM for Parsons uh, dealing with teaching the Hebrew language. The man was incredible. And uh, one night, I had a night class, and we were walking out to the car together, and I told him, I said, uh, Dr. Hildebrand, I just have trouble believing that, uh, uh, and I, I've heard you teach it in theology, that if we are truly saved, that we cannot lose our salvation. I said, I, I wasn't ready to believe that. I, I have difficulty believing that. He said, well, let me ask you something. I said, what's that? He said, you have a son, don't you? I said, yeah. Uh, when he messes up, do you stop loving him? Went, no. If he messed up really bad, would you stop loving him? No. What if he did something so hideous that he was placed into prison? Would that stop him from being your son? I said, no. He said, that's why Jesus said, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to them that ask? And for the first time I thought, I've been saying I'm a better dad than God. You see, there's what's called the tulip. And I know most of you, or some of you have heard me teach on that before. There was what was first called the uh, Belgian Confession in 1561, and then there was the Heidelberg Confession in 1563. But in 1618, it was what was called the Synod of Dort, which was a, a not for dorks, but Dort. That was taken from the German town Dortmund. And so they call it the Synod of Dort. And what it was written down to was to defend the gospel message because there were those who were Arminian or followers of Pelagius theology that basically taught that you have to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And I uh, said, what's wrong with that? And you can accept Him or you can reject Him. And that our good works are involved in our salvation to get us into heaven. Those two teachings drove me nuts. And so I got the writings of Jacobus Arminius and I got the writings of John Calvin. You see, I brought up one way, was being taught another way. In fact, I had been taught that Calvinism was a terrible, terrible thing. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, who's called the minister's minister, uh, one of the mightiest preachers of all time, he said, I take the title Calvinist. He said, if somebody asks me what does Calvinist means, it means salvation is of God. And boy, that put it succinctly. You see, God's Word tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus is the author 
and the finisher of our faith. Now, I've, I've written books, Matt's written books, and there's nothing scarier than looking at a screen that's blank and get ready to start to write a book. That is one of the scariest things in the world, is look at that screen and thought, okay, here we go. But as soon as I start to type, that makes me the author. I'm putting down what was given to me to put down. Jesus Christ is the beginning. He is the author of your salvation. Let me give you an example. There was a poet by the name of Thompson. Can't recall his first name. He wrote a poem many, many, many years ago, and he made a reference about the hound of heaven. You see, every one of you can think back, those of you who are saved, know Jesus, Lord, and Savior. Every one of you can think back, and you think, yeah, I remember I went through this, that, and the other. I remember when I went forward. I remember when I got baptized. Let me tell you something. Newsflash. You didn't think nothing of it. You didn't think nothing of it. You didn't come up with nothing. It's just like God's word, when, when God spoke to Saul in Acts chapter 9, he said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It's hard for thee to kick against the goads. In other words, God had been directing him. You know, the way that they used to, uh, you know, nowadays they got electric shock arms. They get the cattle to move back then. They had big long sticks and sharpened points, and they, they were called goads. They would get cattle to go the direction they wanted them to go in. And God was using go to get Saul where he wanted him to be, that he would accept the plan of salvation and change his name from Saul to Paul. Well, I look back at my life, I'll never forget when it happened. I was in Marinette, Wisconsin, and I had overdosed on booze. I had alcohol poisoning. I had alcohol shock. When I got to the hospital, I was just about dead. They greased the paddles. And I remember, and I've gone into detail before, I said, Lord, if you just get me back home, if I can just see my wife and son one more time, that's all I ask. Well, after they got IVs in me and I was in there for several days, uh, I forgot all about those promises. <laughs> we have a tendency to do that. And driving back home from Marinette, Wisconsin, all of a sudden there was a cloud come on me. And when I got back home, I was driving down Old Gray Station Road and I got in front of Sid Martin's store. And all of a sudden, if you had tucked a weighted blanket and laid it on me, there was a depression and an oppression that came upon me as quick as you could snap your fingers. And I didn't know what was happening. My palms started sweating. My breathing got short. And I was having a panic attack. I didn't know what it was. And the only thing that I could think of, two words come to my mind, personal savior. Long story short, it took me one year. One year of trying to find, I went to my medical doctor. He said, oh, well, what you need is Valium. He wrote me a prescription for Valium, so I'd go home and take Valium and drink wine with him. One day, Linda said, what's wrong? I said, why? She said, you've been staring at the wall for 45 minutes and haven't moved. And I come to the conclusion, this isn't living. This is just existing. I don't want to exist. I want to leave, to live. One year it took me. And the moment that I realized what it meant that Jesus was my personal Savior, that was the moment that I got relief. I got freedom. I got a, a, a freeness to my spirit. Now, I didn't think it up. Guess who was allowing all those things to happen to get me to where he wanted me? God. He is the author and the finisher of my faith. 
He is with you. Hindsight is perfect. At the time, you don't realize what's happening. And God does that in other areas of our life, even once we're saved and sanctified. He will allow events and circumstances to get us in the condition and position that He wants us where He can use us because He is the sovereign Lord God Almighty. But without God, as we read in Jeremiah 17, you're totally depraved. That doesn't mean everybody's totally insane, but you're depraved in the sense that all of your good works is but filthy rags in the sight of God. You see, we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He is the author. He started it in you. He grew you. He is the author and the finisher. What do you mean the finisher? He can bring us all the way home. All the way home. We're not saved by how good we are. Praise God. If, if we were saved by our merits, I'd go to hell every day. And you would too. He said, well, there's a lot of people doing good works. Yeah, but their motivation may be wrong. The reason for what they do may be wrong. It's only when you accept God's forgiveness. In fact, look over here at John chapter 6. John chapter 6. I can get over there to it myself. Hold on. In John chapter 6. If you get a chance, I want you to read that whole chapter. It's glorious. But let's jump in about verse 35. John chapter 6. Jump in about verse 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now let me sit there. Let's stop here for a second. We always try to find fulfillment in everything. We're hungry. Our soul is hungry. Our spirit is hungry. And we try to satisfy it with, with, with booze, with pills, with everything under the, the, the world, promiscuous activity, everything, trying to satisfy that yearning. There's only one thing that can fill and satisfy. That's the bread of life. And we see over verse 48, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. You're not going to be happy. It doesn't mean you won't have troubles. You'll have troubles. But if you always go back to the author and the finish of your faith, you can take a sigh of release, release and contentment. Verse 36, But I said unto you that you also have seen me and believe not. It's like Thomas, John chapter 20, he said, Unless I see the wounds in his side and in his hands, I will not believe. Jesus appeared to him and said, Go ahead, Thomas, put your hands on my wounds. And he said, my Lord and my God. He said, blessed are you because you have seen and believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and believed. You see, there comes a time when you have run from God. That's why God's word says we are at enmity with God. We are at war with God. That we have run from God to the point where we can't run anymore. And then that's when we surrender and realize that he is the bread of life. Just like in John 4, the woman who went to the well, the Samaritan, the Samaritan woman who went to the well looking for water, Jesus said, let me tell you about a water that you'll never have to go fetch after again. She said, hey, give me that water so I don't have to go carry water. He said, no, 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 no. The water I have is the living water. You see, we are just like I told that church last Sunday. Good people, don't get me wrong. 
I said, until you get on fire for the things. You know, we used to have a lady. I don't know if she went here. I know she was at, when I passed her at Liberty. I called her a honeybee Christian. She's one of these that every time she'd hear about some great revival, some great move, uh, I don't care if it was in Toronto or Louisiana or wherever, she'd take up and go follow these great moves. I, and I call her a, a, a honeybee Christian. She's just always looking for the next new thing, the next new thrill. If you don't understand the core of your salvation, that is all you need to get excited about. You who were made sin. That he loved you, as Ephesians 1 tells, and I get this, before the foundation of the world, the one who hung the stars in the sky also had determined before the foundation of the world that you would be saved. Do you get that? Before the Lord draws you, you're totally depraved. In other words, you have no desire for the Lord or the things of the Lord. The Lord places within you the desire to come to him, and you don't even know it at the time. Because our hearts, as Jeremiah 17, our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know? But then all of a sudden, you start having a longing. It may be fear. It may be anxiety. It may be worry. It may be... I get <laughs> amused every time I hear somebody say, Pastor, I'm, I'm having troubles right now and I don't want to come to the Lord just because I'm having troubles. And I'll tell them, you're having troubles to get you to the Lord. That's why you're having these troubles. Doesn't mean he'll remove all your troubles. But in there you will find the answer. The moment I understood Jesus as my personal Savior, I didn't all of a sudden everything become uh, uh, unicorns and blue jays. I don't know where I come up with that, but that's worth writing down. <laughs> but I knew instantly this is the answer. This is the route. This is the path of righteousness I need to pursue. Then when I understood that before the foundation of the world, before the foundation of the world, He saw you, He loved you, He had determined, listen close, He determined before the foundation of the world that you would be saved and you did not even know it. And see, that flips a lot of Christians out. So, oh, I just can't believe it because you have to realize then that salvation is limited. So what, what the Bible says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believed in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So therefore He died for everybody in the world who would accept Him and not forsake Him. No, you read it wrong. He died for the world of believers that He had determined would be saved. Look over here. Keep your finger there. John 6, but flip over here, if you will, to uh, Acts 13. I'm going to show you something. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. Paul and Barnabas were speaking at Antioch. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And look at this. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. You see that? As many as, in other words, as many as were intended to be saved, heard and believed. Remember what we read earlier? You, Jesus said, you have seen me, but not know me. Why? Because their eyes were blinded. You see him here because your eyes and hearts have been opened. And that's only because 
the Lord allowed it to be hoped. You may say, well, that's not fair. Go back and read in Romans 9. God addresses that very issue. He says, who are you to call the potter not fair? Does not the potter have power over the clay? And he goes on to talk in Romans chapter 9. Was not Pharaoh made for this purpose so that the children of Israel would be saved? He goes on to tell us there in, in, in Romans chapter 9. He says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. It didn't mean hate like we think of hate. It means preferred. He said, what about all the other people that's going to die and go to hell and didn't have a chance? Here's where you have to look at that. At the time of the fall, Adam and Eve, all mankind was destined to hell. Because why? We violated the things of the Lord. We didn't want it. We didn't ask for it. But God in His mercy and His love saved some. Here's the only National Geographic. These lemmings, once a year, these lemmings take off in a run. Literally. And they run over the precipice of a cliff and die. And one starts running, they all start running. Well, that's the way we were like after the fall. But the Lord pulled some back. All we have to rejoice in, it's not left up to, to determine. Some people say, well, it was just because of God's foreknowledge. Well, look at that. Foreknowledge is saying and doing what he could intercept and do or not do. Same difference. You know what that means in England when you do that? I'll tell you later. Tell me I had two seconds, two minutes. Two minutes. It's still the same. You see, if you believe that you're saved and you can lose your salvation, your God's smaller than mine. My God is sovereign. This word says he knows when we sit down. He knows when we stand up. He knows our thoughts are far, far off. He said before the world was made, I knew you and ordained you to be saved. He's the one that made us understand. Linda knows I have talked to scholars at Oxford and had never heard the gospel. Scholars who had major passages of the Bible uh, committed to memory. And she's seen them come up to me and said, Priests! Come to me and said, I have never heard it that way before. A five-year-old can understand it, and a 95-year-old theologian cannot understand it. Why? Because God gave it to him to understand, and it was not intended for him to understand. That's like if Linda uh, writes me a letter. There'll be things in there that if somebody else writes, what in the world is she talking about? For example, if I wrote in a letter right now to Linda, my love is bigger than all our space. And nothing else can bear with it. <laughs> See, we didn't plan that, we didn't rehearse it. We've been saying that since she was 17 years old. You see, that's the way it is with the Bible. It's not intended for everybody, because everybody's not going to be saved. But if you have a yearning, if you have a drawing, if you feel the need for a Savior, it's only there because God put it there. Go back. I know we got about out of time, but I haven't even scratched her. Look at John chapter 6 again. I told you that. Put your finger there and go back. John chapter 6. Then look at verse 37. What color are the words this is written in in most Bibles? Amen. That means who said it? Jesus. 
Well, this is verse 36. But I said unto you that you also have seen me and not believe not. Verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Look down here in verse 44 of that same chapter. No man can come to me except the Father has sent me to draw him, and I will raise him up at the last days. Same chapter. Look over here. Jesus said again in verse 65. And he said, Therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. Now how much clearer do you need to get? That ought to make you so happy about salvation. I don't need to go hear about some miracle worker or something like that to get excited. I'm excited every day because I don't deserve what He has given me. I love my Lord and Savior because in spite of my sins, sinfulness, in spite of the fact for reasons only known to Him, He has called me, He has sought me, and He has bought me, He has justified me, He has sanctified me, and one day He shall glorify me. And that's all I need to make me a happy camper. Amen? Amen. Let's stand you would, please. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come into your holy presence. Thank you for the love of God that's shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Thank you this day and time when we are oppressed and attacked, that we can rejoice in knowing that we are God's elect. That you are the author and finisher of our faith. That you which has begun a good work in us, as your word says, shall bring it to completion. You have told us that you loved us even when we were not loving you. For God committed his love toward us in that while we were yet not sin, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's love we don't understand. We just thank you, we got it. And that's because you are the author and the finisher. Father, I pray if anyone here today doesn't know you as the Lord and Savior of their life, that they'll pray this prayer I'm about to pray. Dear Jesus, forgive me of all my sins. Come into my heart and save me. I receive you as my Lord and my God and my personal Savior. Holy Spirit, please fill me to overflowing and thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. And all of God's children said, Amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning while Gina playing, please come to the front of the church. chapter 1 it says that he has made us kings and priests he had not only as Romans 8 says adopted you when I have counseled with children who were adopted I've told them I said you are so fortunate you are so blessed and they look at me like what because you're adopted and they look at me a big question mark I said look when my son came, I had to take what they gave me. 
But your parents went in there and said, that's the one I want. More than anybody else here, that's the one I want. That's how much you're loved. Well, that's what God has done for us. You're the one he wanted and he chose and he died for. You don't need any more to be happy about than that reality. Right now it's difficult times. Crazy times. If it ever gets to the word, you think back of the one who sought you and bought you and has your todays and tomorrows all under his sovereign control. Father, thank you so much for this day and the study of your holy word. And I pray, Father God, that if anyone doesn't have that yearning, that hunger, or if they do have that and have not received that predetermined gift of salvation that you have for them, that they would not leave here today till they took care of that. Keep us our going out and coming in and bring us back safely at the point of time. For these things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's children said, Amen. Amen. Uh, I tell you what, like I said, next week uh, I won't be here, but young Dr. Young has got a powerful message prepared. Following Sunday, I want to finish up on this. That be all right with you? Perfect. All right. God bless you.